0: The pay disparity between the men and women is is just too large, and and we want to continue to fight. Uh, The generation of players before us fought, and now it's our job to to keep on fighting. The pay cap
1: for the women's major league soccer players is 11 times less than the pay cap for men's major league soccer, 11 times.
2: You are listening to Give and Go with Rotas Wadera only on Girls Soccer Network. Hello and welcome. You are listening to a very special edition of Give and Go. It is our best of 2019 podcast, and we have so much to get into. For this episode, we are coming to you live from Los Angeles. Thank you for making the choice to listen to us at Girls Soccer Network. Of course, for more information, go to www.girlssoccernetwork.com. Follow us on Instagram at Girls Soccer Network and on Twitter at Girls Soccer Net. So, as always, i got to let you guys know how you can get this podcast right. We are on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. You can go to any one of those avenues to download. Just search Give & Go. Again, you can also tell Siri to play this podcast at any given time. Play a new episode, an old episode. You can even subscribe to this show so you get every single episode that you need to get. Next up, very important announcement. We are super excited to announce that World Strides Excel will be sponsoring this podcast in 2020 They provide some of the best soccer tours around the world. Be sure to check out www.worldstrides.com. All right. Now that that is out of the way, we have so much to get into. Some great audio as well. A couple special interviews, one with Paul Radcliffe, the Stanford head coach. We have Ali Santner, who is the Sports Illustrated Sports Kid of the Year, as well as a very special small clip from the St. Kitts and Nevins head coach, Janae Baclowski. So, here we go. When you think about 2019 as a whole, right, it truly was something special for women's soccer. It grew exponentially when you think about overall from with the World Cup to the infrastructure being put into place with all of the recognition that it got truly something amazing to see where was last year compared to this year. People are definitely starting to take notice. There's still plenty left to be done, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of issues, but for us to not give credit right to what's happened, it's truly something amazing. So we start at the top with Stanford winning their third national championship that happened very recently. They've been really at the pinnacle of women's college soccer for the last five years. You're looking at number one overall seed after number one overall seed. Almost no one will be able to replicate what North Carolina did right with their 22 national titles but Stanford has certainly been the team of this decade when you think about their level of dominance yes other teams have won national titles but they've been the best regular season team for sure and you look at players like game changing players have come through that program before like Kristen Press like Kelly O'Hara but now you have two in place Katarina Macario and, and Sophia Smith Smith has two more years of eligibility left and came off a broken ankle to really just tear up the competition. Of course, we know what Katerina Macario is capable of when she is at her best because... That's a player that is transcending the game right now. She's almost too good for college. And when you look at the numbers that she's put up, you know, more than 30 goals, more than 20 assists. Like, how do you fit that much into the number of games that these college players play is is truly something special. So she's a special, special player. It was a dramatic, dramatic match. Both North Carolina and Stanford you know, lost in the Final Four last year and were able to bounce back, get to the final again. This North Carolina team was so scrappy, gritty, tough. We used all those qualities, but a little undermanned as well, losing Emily Fox. That was an unfortunate turn of events in the Final Four. But... Stanford, in the end, even though they could not take their chances, they had to take it all the way to the penalty shootout, they held their nerve. Katie Meyer, wherever you fall on... The behavior of her actions, look, I think it depends. The way she acted in the UCLA game was a little different because of what she quote-unquote said in that moment. That's not okay, but the level of passion otherwise, like in the penalty shootout, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You got to let these players express themselves, especially when (laughs) it's a national title game in a penalty shootout, and... As dramatic as could be, Kiki Pickett, who also plays the game with so much passion and energy, was as calm as can be and stepped up and converted the penalty. So without further ado, we have an interview with Paul Radcliffe that we would like to share with you guys, kind of talking about the season, those situations that I just mentioned, as well as how Stanford has been able to build what they've built. Enjoy, guys. Coach, congratulations to you and your team for winning your third national championship. How do you feel about the victory Now that you've had some time to take in what you guys have achieved.
1: Obviously, we're very happy. It's always challenging to win a national championship. And then it came down to penalty kicks. It can be even more meaningful because you know how close it was to going the other way. But ultimately, I'm proud of what the team accomplished all season. I think they had a phenomenal run and a really good team. And,
2: you know, I'm really proud of them. So what would you say was different about this year compared to winning it in 2017 or winning it in 2011?
1: I think every year it's been challenging. It's never easy. But I think winning in PKs, I believe this was the first time the Women's College Cup had gotten to PKs, is even more dramatic. And, you know, every player stepping up to take that penalty kick, how critical it was, our goalkeeping, how critical that was in the end to get the results, I think just magnified how difficult it is to, to win that College Cup. So I think that was the difference. But overall, you know, unbelievable team. So many players made incredible contributions. I think everyone on this team made a, a big impact for us to win the College Cup. Like I said before, I'm super, super proud of the
2: team. Now you and this program have been able to maintain this level of excellence over the last you know five to six years, always consistently near the top of the rankings. How do you maintain that over such a long period of time?
1: Well, I think it's a testament to the student-athletes that we recruit to Stanford. You know, the reason you choose Stanford is because you want to be the best academically and athletically. And, you know, our student-athletes come in and they're, they're tireless workers. They want to improve. They want to grow every day. So I give them all the credit. As coaches, I have a great staff, too. My assistant coaches, our entire staff is very strong. We try to create the right environment for them to grow and reach their goals. And I think you get the combination of those two things together, and then great chemistry amongst the players—that they all care about each other and want to lift each other up and make each other better every day. Those factors kind of play into it, and I'm really proud of that because it is hard. It shows the character of the overall team that they can continue to be at the top
2: competing. And you mentioned you know athletics and academics. Was that really the main pitch to players like Katarina Macario, like Sophia Smith, when you're recruiting them? Was it a difficult job, or, or were they really just intrigued from the very beginning?
1: Well, I think it's all, the recruiting process is always difficult because there are a lot of good programs around the nation, and the top players like Katerina and Sophia, most of our players, have so many options. But I do think, you know, Stanford is an incredible university. You know, in my mind, it's the highest level of academics and athletics together that you can get. So I think that probably helps in their decision-making process that they want, you know, not just a great
2: athletic experience but also a great academic experience. And then socially, obviously, you know, being in California, it's a great location, a great place to be. So we're really fortunate to be able to attract those those great scholar-athletes to Stanford. You've been there since 2003. What's been your favorite thing about being able to coach at a program like Stanford? My favorite thing about coaching at Stanford is just the people that
1: we attract and the people I get to work with that I can play a small part in their development, you know, through their career is fantastic, I've had so many great ones, you know, like Kelly O'Hara and Rachel Bueller I mean, there's so many, I can go through the names of the players that I've had the opportunity to coach, and I think a lot of people just see them on the field, and how amazing they are on the field, but I can tell you, without doubt, they're even more amazing off the field, the things they do you know, academically, and their leadership skills, and all these different things they bring to the table, I've just been Feels like I'm so fortunate that I got a chance to, to get to know them and, you know, become friends with them, ultimately, and help them along their, their
2: road. Mm-hmm. And you were previously at St. Mary's before you made the move to Stanford. What would you say helped you during your time there that helped you build what you've been able to build at Stanford?
1: Yeah, well, that's a good question. You know, I started out as an assistant at UCLA, and then I got my first head coaching job at St. Mary's. And I think when you're a young head coach, you are learning on the job a little bit. So I was really fortunate to get that experience at St. Mary's and, you know, made some good decisions and obviously some bad decisions along the way, as we all do, we're all human. But I tried to learn from all those. And, you know, when I got to Stanford, I still felt like I was relatively young and learning a little bit as I went. And I still learn to this day, but with experience, you get better and better and you make a little bit more accurate decisions. So I think we're, we're always growing and experience
2: plays into it at the end of the day. You need that experience and, you know, in the, the heat of the battle, those big games, that's when you're learning the most. Mm-hmm. And where would you say your coaching philosophy was was truly developed? Because every time I watch Stanford play, it's despite all the star power, everyone always makes the right pass. They always make the right play first and that level of unselfishness is rare to see with so much star power. Where did your philosophy overall and that kind of idea develop? Yeah, I think my my philosophy, I think for most coaches, your philosophy
3: comes from the people that you've played for or that you've coached with, kind of
1: your mentors. I give a lot of credit to Siggy Schmidt. He was my coach at UCLA when I played, and I learned a lot from him. And then along the way, so many other coaches that played a part in my development that I learned from, you know, club team coaches growing up, and then also just, you know, my own research and watching high-level games and high-level players and trying to learn different styles of play, I think I'm definitely someone that loves watching soccer and learning from the top-level teams, whether right now it's like a Manchester City or a Liverpool, whoever it is, I love watching all the top teams in the world and learning from them. So I've kind of put all that together and come up with my kind of style of play, per se. And, you know, I do believe in sharing the ball unselfish play. And I put a lot of emphasis on the intelligence of play and having that soccer brain. I don't want to just get it forward and run
3: and go. I want to make sure they're making the right decisions. So that's something I definitely preach. And I think that's
1: an area of the game in the United States we all need to develop. And it's really important to the future of soccer in the United States.
2: No matter what, you always manage to stay so even-keeled, composed, never too high, never too low. How are you able to maintain that? Because some coaches, quite frankly, especially here in, in American coaching culture, don't necessarily have that ability to, to stay that calm at all times.
1: Yeah, in order to have longevity, I think you have to be pretty even keeled. And you know, the, the life of a coach, the life of a player can be very difficult because you have really high highs and really low lows. And if you let those things affect you, I don't think it'll be good for you mentally. So I try to stay even keeled when I win big games. I try to stay pretty calm, and I'm obviously I'm happy about it, but I don't get too out of control. And when you lose games, that can be really disappointing. you got to stay positive and say, hey, it was on the day, and next time we'll play better, and then, how can I learn from this? What can I do to improve that I don't have this feeling again where you're you know, after a loss? So I think it's just trying to keep a, an even head. And you want your players to be that way, too. You don't want them thinking the world's over if they lose and if they win one game that they're the best thing that's ever happened because, you know, there's always another game coming up and you got to be
2: ready for it, so you got to stay humble. Piggybacking off of that, how were you able to handle, you know, Katie Myers' level of emotion? Obviously, that drew plenty of headlines and, you know, people were on the fence, whether you love it, you hate it, like how were you able to kind of manage that? Or is it really just letting the players play and express themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to let the players play and express themselves. But at the same time, you know, I want to make sure they're behaving in the proper manner. And I think knowing Katie, she's a big personality and a great competitor. So I think when you saw her reacting that way, it was just her competitive fire. Mm-hmm. Which helped her, you know, win that PK shootout in the end, mm-hmm. um, and save the PK against UCLA. I think that fire. So you need that personality, but you have to be smart about it. So you know, it's something I definitely spoke to her about to help her grow. But she's a young player, and I love her enthusiasm. And you know, she's a big part of our success this year. So I'm really proud of her. But uh, yeah, that's that's the hard part about coaching. Everyone's got different personalities. You got to stay true to your personality. I'm more of a level-headed coach. I think there are other coaches that are more animated, and that works for them. And um, sometimes, you know, it's a it's a positive to be animated. So you got to kind of find the right balance for you as, as your personality. Every player is going to be different. But you know, Katie's amazing, and I love her energy and her enthusiasm, and she's a great competitor.
2: You've coached some amazing players at Stanford: Kristen Press, Kelly O'Hara, as you mentioned. Where does Katerina Macario rank among some of the players that you've coached? Is she the best?
1: Yeah, Katarina. will I mean, they're all great players in their own right in different time periods. But in this time period right now, you know, Katarina is one of the best I have ever seen. She has an extraordinary future ahead of her. You know, the amount of goals and assists she's scoring and how unselfish she is, she makes everyone around her better. And, you know, it's incredible. She's won two national championships. And she still has one year left. So, you know, if she was able to lead us to another one next year, win three national championships in four years, just speaks to how good she is. But yeah, she's she's an extraordinary player and a really humble person. And everyone on the team loves her, and they want to play better for her because they know how much she puts into the game and how much she cares about all her teammates.
2: So now that this season is over, how much preparation have you started for next year? Have you already started to look ahead, get ready, are you on the recruiting trail, all that good stuff?
1: Yeah, we get straight to work after, and we celebrated after the game, which was fun. I got together with my staff, we had a good celebration, and then our student-athletes had final exams right after, so they were straight back to the grind on the academic side, and now we're giving them a little break, and then we'll come back together at the beginning of January after the holidays and then we'll start training again for me i'm in the office just getting work done and get my assistants out on the road recruiting so yeah we're keeping busy it's, it's business as usual and I, you know we have our eye on the prize for next year now and we want to be the best we can be for next season so we're already moving ahead but this year was extraordinary and we enjoyed it while we could and now we got to move forward
2: last question what is your advice to young girls out there looking to play college soccer or just simply get better and improve?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the best advice I can give is don't rely just on your club team environment or your high school environment or whatever level you're at. Make sure you do some individual work on your own. I think, you know, even if it's 20 or 30 minutes every other day or, you know, twice a week, I should say kicking against a wall, just working on your own skills, honing your skills individually, and not just in the team environment, I think will definitely complement what you're doing in a team environment and help you elevate your
2: game to a higher level. Paul Radcliffe is a special coach who has this innate ability to get these players to just be so unselfish. And he will, of course, like in that interview, give the credit to his players as he should. That's, that's what great coaches do but his ability to guide them, and, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, the way that they pass the ball, the way that they always are making the right play at the right time, precision passing, it's intelligent football that that we talked about. And it could be changing the college soccer landscape because when you have that much star power, I tell you, it, it can be hard to manage. You could have all the talent in the world, but you need a great coach to bring them together. Next up, of course, we have to talk about U.S. Women's National Team, four stars, winning the World Cup, and it's crazy what a whirlwind that was leading up to it, because there was a lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny, a lot of this and that about squad selection, lineups, all this stuff, and I was, of course, one of those people as well, and I have to, you know, accept that I was wrong of, of my criticisms of, of Jill Ellis, because at the end of the day, they made it look easy. They really did, and they ran the table. Of course, tougher matches were in the quarterfinal and semifinal uh, rather than that final match against the Netherlands. But you look at the gauntlet that they ran through, the teams that they had to beat, it, it was so incredibly well-deserved. Of course, Megan Rapino gets a lot of the credit, but it was a breakout, really kind of a coming-out party for Rose Lavelle. Julie Ertz, of course, is that player, and we'll get more into the award that she won later on. And Alyssa Nair, who I've been very critical of, potentially being a weak spot, made the clutch saves at the right time. So, again, got to tip your cap off to her. And I got to, again, swallow my words and say that I was wrong about her because she really came through and her level of experience is something that needs to be appreciated a little bit more. Regardless of what you think about Adriana French, Ashlyn Harris, who should be in there, Alyssa Nair has earned that spot. Other great stories from the World Cup There's obviously the Jamaicans, right? You think about how they qualified. It was such a special moment for that country. And then on top of that, you think about the goal that they scored, right? To get it back to 2-1 against Australia. They did not end up winning that game. But to see the celebrations, to see what it meant to that country to score, to have that moment, was a special, special thing. You could say the same for other countries that had never qualified before just for, you know, Chile to be there. You think about, I mean, Thailand had been there before and there was a lot of talk about the way the United States scored as many goals as they did against them. But at the end of the day, it was a tremendous, tremendous event for not only our country because of the impact it had, and we'll get into that later, but for what it did for the women's game. And we obviously have this talk about our new FIFA president talking about making the world cup once every 2 years rather than 4 years and that to me seems like a bit of a money grab and almost not necessarily you know putting as much importance on the club level first You know, because that's why on the men's side it happens every four years. You need that time off that cycle because you have so many matches for qualification. You're going to totally hurt the club game if that happens. It would be great for the exposure, but knowing FIFA in the past and unless things have really changed, right, it definitely seems more of like a money grab rather than it is about promoting the game. I hope that there are good intentions behind that idea if it were to happen. Again, it's only preliminary talks, but... You think about once every two years, that's a tricky thing with qualification, plus qualification for the Olympics, plus club games. As it is, you're putting so much stress on these women in terms of how often they play. And with scheduling and travel, it would be a lot. There's a lot to consider there. The year of Megan Rapino. Now, we've discussed her impact like what it had and what she did with her platform. Because of the attention that she got, she used it in a way to uplift women, but really in a no-nonsense type manner. She has not sugarcoated one thing, anything that she's had to say. She's taken on the president. She's taken on the U.S. Federation. She's taking on... All of the men's great players who don't promote the game enough. She's literally taking on everyone. And she has the clout to do that now because of every single award that she has won and that she has used. With that being said, was she the best player? No. I think we know that. And I think there were two awards that you think about. Yes, she won the FIFA Best Player of the Year plus the Ball on Door and then Sports Person of the Year, right, an SI. So she came away with almost a clean sweep except... For one, and that was Julie Ertz winning the U.S. Women's National Team Player of the Year. And that speaks volumes, and I'm really glad that they got that right. They totally got that right because when you think about Julie impact, if she's not in the lineup, the United States are a completely different team. Because anytime there's issues in the back line, Jalelis could put her at the back. Anytime you weren't sure about what performance you were going to get out of your midfield, stick her in that defensive midfielder role and she'll do the job to perfection. Always giving everything she has and every other team knew that because they would beat her up. At every opportunity they got, you should have seen, right, the number of times Juilliards was on the ground because someone's either taking a cheap shot or just adding a little extra contact and putting a body on her. Just the durability to go with her versatility is unmatched. And so that was so great to see her win that award because she technically, like, you could absolutely argue she is the most important player for that team. I don't think they win the World Cup without her, right? If she's not there, that team looks totally different. And there are things that could have been exposed in that case. So Julie Ertz winning U.S. Women's National Team Player of the Year, that is a big, big deal. Of course, the Ballon d'Or came out more recently and Megan Rapinoe won. But based on the nominees, right, if we're being totally honest here, no player had more of an impact for their team of the nominees than Lucy Bronze of England. She was a beast in attack and defense her ability to get forward to distribute like best right back in the world for sure and to think that she's not going to get recognized for the year that she had for the world cup that she had is not really fair but again because of whatever politics and whatever things we have going on behind the scenes i don't know who's voting i don't know how it works but lucy bronze should have won that award the ball door should have been hers yeah, I mean, what else can we do? We, I guess it's going to take a little bit of time before all of these different awards will become a little more, I wouldn't say legitimate because they are legit awards, but like the criteria upon which we have these awards, like what does that mean exactly, right? Like where is that going to come from? So tough, it's tough. But again, congrats to Megan Rapinoe for taking home. She's going to have a very, very full trophy case after this year. Moving on to the Guardians Top 100 Players list. This is the first time I can say, you know, I'm actually happy with the judging, the criteria, because this is everyone involved with the game on every level voting, okay? And this time it was consensus that Sam Kerr was the best player in the world, and she has not been even named a finalist for all of those big awards. So for her to get this recognition is a big deal. It speaks volumes that her peers were willing to vote her there. Again, I think it silences any doubt that she is the best player and you know she obviously deserves a recognition, but now she's going to get even more exposure now that she has left the Chicago Red Star. She has left the W League and she is going to be at Chelsea, which is a big, big move. And it could have a domino effect of epic proportions. You look at just her salary alone, right? There were reports about exactly how much money she was going to be making. According to reports, it was a two and a half year contract worth $410,000 per season as opposed to the NWSL where you were, yes, they did increase the compensation. The max salary is $50,000. So (laughs) you can understand Sam Curtis has got to make a business decision at some point and when you've done everything that you needed to do in America to see what she has done overall is something special. So now the question is, what does this move mean for the NWSL and the W League? Now, we did mention in the last podcast that they're teaming up to try and save things here. And I mean, I hope that works, but until you get more money, a lot of players are going to jump ship. The greatest example I can think of is where this was happening before this trend kind of started was Janine Becky. Sky Blue have sorted out their situation somewhat now, but imagine going from Sky Blue FC at that particular time going to manchester city the champions of english league soccer at the time she is thriving she is truly like become this incredible player over there who can distribute who can score and we knew she could do that with sky blue but imagine what that feels like to be appreciated for being the best at what you do that doesn't happen here in america right we're still fighting for legitimacy whereas when you go abroad It is so part of the culture that, you know, people are going to take notice. When you have, like, why wouldn't you go where you have the best training grounds, the best facilities, the best trainers, the best everything? It's all there. And the money has been pumped in with this overall global growth that we've had. And, you know, the World Cup definitely helped that tremendously, tremendously in so many ways. You look at the Barclays deal with the FA, Women's Super League, Plus, the record attendance is going on in Liga MX over in Mexico, right? More than forty to 50,000 people going to watch matches. Like, women's soccer has arrived, y'all. It's here. It is here, and hopefully it is here to stay. This is something that we need to build on and continually grow because it has gone to new heights. And so with that, we talked about Sam Kerr's salary and the amount of money you get paid. Once these wages and fees start to come in, man, that's when we're going to start to see even more growth. Because once that first standard is set, then we can go from there, right? Once that first thing is is kind of put into place, once that first major move happens, and this is that move, Sam Kerr, it will hopefully, as I mentioned earlier, be a domino effect for the league. For not just this league, but for every league around the world. And, I mean, the unfortunate thing and the, the scary thing is the NWSL losing players and losing its legitimacy because many would declare it to be the best league in the world because of the amount of star power there. But now everyone else has definitely caught up and I don't see why you wouldn't go to England or to Spain to play for a team. The teams already have so much history attached on the men's side that like you want to be a part of that. It's got nothing to do with gender and men versus women, but like to go play at, at Chelsea in London, right? Like there's there is a certain appeal to that. No disrespect to Chicago. Chicago is an amazing city. But if like if you're not gonna have the same passion around soccer or as big of a fan base that they have, right? It's just not sustainable, unfortunately. And that goes for a lot. like Marta and Alex Morgan kind of sitting over in Orlando, like you have a new stadium, you have everything, but are they filling up those seats? Are, are they playing in front of a, a group of fans that are like there every weekend and week out like it is over in Portland and Providence Park? If it was like that, right, that's why Portland is the gold standard in the league because they have everything that I've been talking about with these European teams. All of that exists already. Can every other team follow suit? Is there enough money in it here? That's the main, main key uh, as we continue to move forward and continue to grow. But as long as big businesses see the profit, and they see the dollar signs, that's when things will start to change, because that's the only thing that matters, unfortunately, it's it's the dollar signs. And, you know, we talked about expansion, and that's critical for the NWSL as well, to be adding more teams because the popularity has grown. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait until 2021, it seems, for Louisville, for potentially Sacramento, Louisville will be the 10th team and another smaller market with not many professional sports teams. So this is like, a—I think it's definitely a good idea. I think it's a way for Louisville to get behind this new team. And, you know, the more the merrier, they say, right? There is so much with this, imagine Sacramento imagining, thinking about L.A., thinking about Hartford, New England area, right? Bringing a team to Boston back. There's a lot of movement going on, and things could really, really change in the near future, which would be incredibly, incredibly exciting. So Louisville is the newest member, and on top of it, what I find more interesting is it would have been nice if Lyon would have been able to have the money to start their own like, Olympic Lyonnais U.S. team of some sort, but instead they're going to be teaming up with Rain FC, which... Makes sense because, again, I don't know what the organization was doing when you moved from Seattle. You lose that identity and you, by going to Tacoma and playing in a minor league baseball stadium. So the move definitely makes sense on both sides, for sure. For sure, it makes sense. And we'll see what it does as going back to what we mentioned in terms of keeping players here. If they can provide that same level of infrastructure at a place like Rain FC... Again, it could be enough to keep players around. Of course, when you think about the NWSL season, how it went, the North Carolina Courage were dominant in the playoffs, but surprisingly, like, their regular season, again, with it being a World Cup year, was tough. Lost a couple of games, surprisingly, that they shouldn't have, but for them to stake claim to a dynasty, uh, something special, three straight NWSL Shields, two straight NWSL Championships, and, of course, you're talking about the title that they won when they were the Western New York Flash. So for them to sustain what they've been able to sustain over that long period of time, and I've said it so many times on the show, the relentless pursuit of improvement and just to be great on a daily basis is second to any other team in the league. And that's why they are the elite of the elite here in women's soccer. It's why they are the best, because they are constantly pushing each other, challenging each other, making each other uncomfortable in practice. So that when the game actually happens, It ain't no thing, and that's why they dominated Chicago 4-0 in that final and and really made it look easy. It's unlike anything we've seen in league history. Now you've got some of those Courage players going in the W League. We'll see if that plays a factor in terms of fatigue, and will they come back and be a little more tired because there isn't much of a break. But we'll see how it goes for the North Carolina Courage. Can they do it again next year? Totally possible. It is absolutely possible. Portland lost a little bit last year. In terms of, you know, when you lose a player like Amandine Henri, you know, other players just simply haven't been able to fill that void since she left. And you could really see it last year. Plus, they need a real goal scorer. They need a real out-and-out striker that they can count on that really wasn't happening for them this year. You look at Rain FC and their development of players like Goentonovsky getting the U.S. Women's National Team job because of how he developed players. Bethany Balser, again, what an incredible story she was to win Rookie of the Year. And then even Casey Murphy coming over from France, Montpellier, and you know former Rutgers goalkeeper doing an amazing job as well. So Reign FC was a great story as well with how they were able to develop talent. Vlad Andonovsky getting the U.S. Women's National Team job. A big, big story as well. So when you look at the league, it's in a good place right now, and hopefully we will continue to build on this in the future. Now, next topic is important. We have to touch on it. The racist allegations that were going on with Adriana French in Utah was definitely a surprising turn of events. And of course, we do not condone that in any way, shape or form. That's not acceptable in any way. You know, you would think we're in 2019. We're past that. Going into 2020, you think we would. But it's an issue not just here, but in sports around the world. Europe especially, it's a big deal. It's happening almost more frequently in Europe than it is here, which is kind of crazy, at least out in the open, in terms of cases that have been reported that we know about. So it's it's there. It's an issue that's not going to go away, but we got to give some credit to how these athletes handle it. I mean, truly, they are class acts. They are so admirable in how they can stand tall and stand up to whatever is being thrown at them. It's so, a salute to Adriana Franch for how she handled that entire situation and was able to rise above some of the hate and negativity that was coming her way. And when the players do it, it makes it a little bit easier for fans and other people to do it as well, to be able to say, hey, look, we cannot allow this to happen. And so it will not go away, but we need to educate and do as much as we possibly can to make sure that this is not a regular occurrence at all. And we just wanted to give some credit to A. Dizzle for how she handled that this year. Next up was Ali Sentner of Hanson, Massachusetts. 15-year-old teenager was named Sports Illustrated Sports Kid of the Year. And let me tell you something, this girl is going places incredibly humble, driven, motivated to do whatever it is that needs to get done. Constantly looking to get better, constantly looking to improve. She's committed to play at the University of North Carolina. We'll look to add to that rich history in a couple years. Definitely focused on her education. We have an interview with her. We hope you enjoy. How does it feel to be named Sports Illustrated's Sports Kid of the Year?
3: I mean, I'm so honored that they named me, Sports Illustrated Kid of the Year. I feel so grateful to be recognized as one of the young athletes in this country, and I just feel honored to represent my teammates, and it's not just for me. It's for everyone who I've played with and who's pushed me to get to this point.
2: So when you had to make that decision between choosing soccer over gymnastics, what is it about the game of soccer that you love so much?
3: First of all, I'm really competitive, so I love the competition when just winning and winning with your team is just such an amazing feeling, whatever team you're on. And then also just playing with people and being on that team is what I really like. I love having teammates that respect you, that look out for you. It's almost like another family.
2: You mentioned, you know, in that Sports Illustrated interview, you have a constant desire to improve and get better. You love working out. Where would you say that drive and that determination comes from?
3: I honestly don't really know where it comes from, but I would say that my personality is just really motivated and driven, and I want to get everything done timely manner and just get everything I want to achieve and put everything I can into that and give 110% whatever I do.
2: Now, you've had your coaches kind of talk about how you can do so many different things on the ball, with the ball. Is there a particular player whose game you've tried to model yours after, or have you really just kind of tried to do your own thing?
3: No, I definitely have so many role models in the game of soccer. I love watching soccer. On the men's side, I try to look up to Messi and play his quick technical style that he plays. And on the women's side, Rose Lavelle, just her quick movements, and she really shined in this World Cup, and I really looked up to her in that way.
2: So you would probably say Rose Lavelle, over anyone, is like your soccer idol, or do you have a specific player that you want to be like, like her?
3: On the field, I think I try to emulate what she does, but just role models in general, the whole U.S. Women's National Team, from Megan Pino, Sammy Muis, I just look up to all of them, and even the players on my own youth national team, the older youth national teams, they just inspire me to keep working hard and to follow my dreams.
2: Now, you've sort of been in touch with some of those national team players, at least briefly. What's that like for you?
3: I mean, every time I meet one of them, it's crazy. They've been my role model since I was younger. So when I meet them, it's just such an amazing experience. And to be able to talk to them about their journey is even more special.
2: How are you able to balance everything between school, traveling, playing soccer, when it comes to being a, a youth national team player?
3: Yeah, so a lot of it doesn't even feel like sacrifices because I love what I do. So the school, the soccer, the balancing, everything at home and just everything in general, I love doing it so it doesn't feel too hard to me. And I like to have a busy life, so it's kind of nice. But it's nice also to have some breaks like now over the Christmas break.
2: And talk about a busy life. What do you do to unwind and, and relax?
3: Well, I love watching soccer, but
2: that's
3: (laughs) usually so. On the weekends, I'll do that. But I like having family time, going to movies and going into the city with my friends, and just really relaxing in those moments when I have those couple of hours or I have that weekend where I don't really have anything, because I think it's important to be a kid as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, you've... (laughs) committed to go to the University of North Carolina, but would you at any point ever consider trying to make a jump to GoPro, similar to what Olivia Moultrie did, or are you set on getting an education and going to Chapel Hill?
3: I mean, education is super important to me, so that's forefront in my mind right now, but I have an open mind, and whatever kind of comes my way and whatever opportunities I can get and grasp onto, I will look into and do all my research on. But right now, I'm excited to go to the ID camps and play for the Tar Heels.
2: Now, in the past, you've spoken to younger girls before about your soccer journey. But what do you learn from being able to go and, and speak to other kids and make an impact in that way?
3: I mean, it's so humbling to me that I can be an inspiration to these younger girls. I look up to a lot of soccer players, and I think it's super cool that I can inspire this younger generation. And I love being able to teach new soccer skills or give advice to anyone that wants it. So super cool to be able to give back to the next generation of players that want to follow their dreams.
2: And so would you say in terms of your overall game, what are your weaknesses and what are things that you need to work on that you feel like you can improve on and get better?
3: There's always something I can improve on in the game and that's what I work towards every week to try to get better at particular things. I can always work on my finishing because as a striker that is never over with working towards and technically just always keeping the, my touches and quickness up and always watching the game just to get more of a tactical sense and to improve in all areas. Mm-hmm.
2: What is your advice to other young girls out there trying to chase their dreams just like you?
3: I would say find someone who you can talk to about everything going on and just always have that drive and motivation to keep working hard, even if it's doing stuff on your own, putting that extra push in so you can separate yourself from the rest
2: and just enjoying the game because you have to keep enjoying it to improve. Again, that was an interview with Ali Santner, Sports Illustrated Sports Kid of the Year. And to see that at 15 years old, truly, truly impressive. She's, as I mentioned before, she's going places, a name to definitely keep an eye on moving forward. Again, you will hear from her in a couple of years. She is so incredibly skilled. All right, one of the last things to discuss, we have a very special clip with Janae Buklowski, an American who is the head coach of the St. Kitts and Nevins national team and the impact that she's been able to make and the investment that is being put into the women's game over there is remarkable. They've made it to the final stage of women's Olympic qualifying with a nation of 57,000 people. We're talking about the smallest independent state in the Western Hemisphere, okay? That is crazy that they have been able to do what they've been able to do. And you can't put the context into words of like how few people that is. It's almost mind-boggling. I'm speechless. Like I can't get over the fact that a country this small has been able to and has been so willing to invest in these women. And it's only a sign of things to come with how things happened with the Jamaican women and now with the St. Kitts and Nevins women you're looking at here in the Caribbean, because like it's not something that really existed with the men's team. right? You talk about Trinidad and Tobago making the 2002 World Cup on the men's side, but like they haven't been able to achieve all that much. Whereas if these women can continue to get the support that they deserve, we're watching and seeing what they can do. And so with that being said, we have a small clip of their head coach talking about this and how they've been able to grow and, and build what they've built. Enjoy, guys.
0: It wasn't something that I was seeking out actively. It was an opportunity that um, kind of they kind of came to me. And the the thing that is really impressive about the Saint Kitts and Nevis Federation is that they realized that they needed to put more money and more focus on the girls and women's game, right? So they wanted to match the quality of coaching licenses and experience that they had on the men's side to the women's side, but they don't have anybody there that has the background of the experience right so so it's an interesting thing because it's it's almost similar it's very similar to i think this approach about traveling internationally it's my role is not a permanent role it's not a full-time role my even though we we've qualified for the next round of the olympics you know the long-term picture is to grow their coaching culture and their playing culture to improve the women's game overall right so you know so you know i think We'll do. We'll do fine. We'll do well in the qualifications. It'll be very difficult since we got Group B, which is essentially the group of death for us. But um, but we'll do really well with the mindset that this experience will help us build towards a World Cup qualification, and it will help improve visibility on the island. And so that's sort of the same thing, you know. Like um, I learned a couple weeks ago that the women's senior team has never played a home game in Saint Kitts in the history of their program, oh my and gosh. so. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, so people, we, we were, we were planning our camp out for Olympic qualifications and we were planning on coming to the United States to do that because about half the players are from the Island and half the players are from Canada or the United States or wherever, you know? So, so I found this out and it was like, okay, we have to play this friendly game, not here. We have to play it there because it's the whole point is to get people excited about the women's game there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so, we got to sell tickets, and we're, that's one of the other things I'm working on this week is to figure out what date and who we're bringing in and all this stuff, you know. But it's the same thing. It's the same idea of, like, it's just expanding the visibility and quality within the girls and the women's game.
2: That was one of our writers, Hannah, who got the opportunity to speak with her. Really amazing to see. Like, it's just such a great story in general, and it was something that we had to get to you guys to put it out there so that you could understand The amount of work that goes into what they are doing and the fact that they have not played a home game, a true home game, is absolutely absurd. Absurd. They are the ultimate road warriors going to everyone else's backyard winning and making it for qualifying. That is amazing. That is something special. We had to give them some credit as well as we wrap things up on the show. So. In closing, it was a tremendous year, and I want to take this as an opportunity to mention not just from a soccer perspective, but no matter how you think this year went, understand that in 2020, things can be different. It is entirely up to you to shape your overall mindset and ability, and you can do whatever you want to do if you are willing to make the changes that you need to make. Those are themes that have been exemplified by these women day in and day out. And there are things that you can do day in and day out if you're willing to create the habits, create the routine, and create whatever it is that you are trying to create on a daily basis and just be willing to do it every single day. All right, that is it for our best of 2019 episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys. Again, Give and Go is very, very excited to be teaming up with World Strides Excel in 2020. And again, you can get this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Stitcher as well. So thank you guys for tuning in. We, of course, greatly appreciate your viewership. And of course, if you really love what we do and you appreciate it, you can donate. There is a link that will be going out on our newsletter. It's not working on my bio for whatever reason in Instagram. I will get that sorted out. But We have a discount link if you would like to make a small contribution for the holiday season. Again, this is Rotas Odera, your host, signing off. Thank you, guys.